Well, Paul had received reports from Chloe's people about the struggles that were being experienced in this Corinthian church. It was a church that he had helped start. And so the church sends a letter to Paul with questions about things that they were either divided over or confused about. And the letter of 1 Corinthians is Paul's response to both the letter that they received, but also to the report that he had, that he had heard. And perhaps the most striking feature of this letter is how it begins. With so many practical situations to address, Paul spends four chapters, one-fourth of the book, addressing their division. The divisions that had settled into this church. He doesn't just address their divisions, he also gets to the source of those divisions. In short, he exposes their pride. In a culture that sought to seduce this church to give up the way of the cross and to live for the wisdom of this world and by the wisdom of this world and for the pleasures of this world, Paul reminds them and he reminds us by extension that some of the greatest threats to the unity and to the health and to the witness of the church aren't, mil- aren't merely those threats that exist outside of the church. Some of the greatest threats to the unity and the health and the witness of the church exist within. And even particularly They exist within each one of us in our proud hearts. As challenging as those external threats are, perhaps the greatest threat is our pride. That which would keep us from living united and bearing witness to this world about who Christ is. You see, pride has a tendency to lead us to this place of gross comparison with one another. Whereby, whereby we begin to take non-essential differences and instead of seeing those non-essential differences as things that you and I can disagree on, we begin to moralize them. What do I mean by moralize them? Well, it's not just you believe this and I believe that. When we begin to moralize those differences, we begin to think, well, you believe this and I believe that, which means you can't be right which means you're wrong. Instead of seeing those non-essential differences as things that we can disagree on, we moralize them, leading us to conclude we are right, we are better, or others are not as good as us. And, and, And this is the condition of the human heart. The human heart always tries to one up another. The human heart always desires to appear more noble before others. The human heart always takes issue. It always desires to take issue with the opinions of others who disagree with us. And I want to be clear, and I think Paul is going to clarify this throughout this letter. There are certain things in the church and concerning truth that we have to be willing to divide over. But these divisions in the church at Corinth were not rooted in the things for the cause of truth. 
They were rooted in the proud ways they held to their preferences. God's design is for the church to be united in truth while being diverse in experience. But the Corinthian church missed that. They created factions. They were willing to be divided in the name of being mature in the faith. They created uh, uh, groups saying, I belong to this one and I belong to that one. All the while thinking that they were being mature. That their willingness to divide was a sign of their maturity. The leading example was the ways in which they would hang on to ministers. Instead of saying, Apollos has something for all of us, and Paul has something for all of us, and Cephas has something for all of us, like we need all of these, instead of that being their approach, the pride in their hearts led them to think, well, I'm a Paul guy, and because I'm a Paul guy, and you're an Apollos guy, that means... I'm a better guy than you. And just as the Corinthian church missed this, covenant life, if we are not careful, we too can make the same mistake. Maybe not over, I'm a Bob guy. I'm a Kevin guy. Aren't we all Kevin guys? Amen. <laughs> Maybe not over those things, but instead of holding our non-essential differences with charity, instead of holding those things and seeking to embody a unity amidst a diversity, we are so prone to moralize our non-essential differences that will then prevent us from moving towards others who see things differently. Or, at, or even worse, we begin to separate from others who hold things differently. I think this is the main point of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Is that there are a lot of things that we should divide over. And yet there is a basis for unity that I think is much stronger than the Corinthian believers realized and perhaps even you and I realize. Belonging to God is the basis for our unity. Belonging to God is the basis for our unity. And as we said in week one of the sermon series, the relevance of this letter is both timely and needed for our church today. Paul served the Corinthian church with this truth, and I trust he will serve us in helping us to pull the focus off of ourselves and place it rightly upon God. And he gives the antidote. He gives the antidote for their pride and for their divisions. And he points them, take your eyes off of self and look unto God. Consider the gospel. Living in disunity over non-essentials in the church reveals a deeper problem than not merely getting along. It reveals not understanding the rich implications and applications of the gospel. And so I wonder this morning, what areas are you guilty of this? What areas are you close to being guilty of this? 
being willing to either not move towards someone who disagrees with you over a non-essential issue, or even worse, separating from those who disagree with you. God has much to say, and we'll consider this chapter in four sections. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And if you don't have the Bible, we'd invite you to use the one in the pew in front of you. And on your way out from the service today, if you'll stop by our information table, we would love to give you a copy of the Bible for you to keep. We'd love for you to read it. We'd love for you to get to know the God who reveals himself in and through the Bible. First section, the truth about divisions. The truth about divisions. In the passage that we heard read this morning, verses 1 through 4, Paul issues a sobering assessment concerning these Corinthian believers, but he also issues a direct challenge to them. And the sobering assessment is that sadly, Paul cannot speak to these believers. He can't speak to them like he wants to speak to them. He wants to speak to them as though they are filled with the Holy Spirit. But they're acting as if they don't even have the Holy Spirit. Look at what he says in verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of the flesh, as to infants in Christ. Your translation may say, as mere men. He likens the behavior of these Corinthian Christians to those of immature infants in Christ. Like those who had not really understood the wisdom of the cross. Like those who were not marked with a uh, being possessed by the Holy Spirit. Like those who were not freed from jealousy and strife that consumed those in the world. I mean, Paul would have been writing this looking at the world and going, they love strife. They love competition. They love division. Why in the world, Corinthian church, do you love the same things the Corinthian culture loves? Divisions on non-essential matters within a local church do not reveal spiritual maturity. Rather, it reveals the opposite, a lack of maturity. Again, in what ways are you being tempted even now to divide with others around non-essential issues, particularly in the local church? And as I've thought about this this week, I've thought about the propensity of my heart whenever I come to a place, not essential, disagreement with someone, the propensity of my heart is to say, yeah, if only, if only they could see it this way. If only, what preoccupies my mind is the condition of their perspective, the condition of their heart. I've been challenged and encouraged this week, humbled this week to think, what might that reveal not about the condition of the heart of another, what might that reveal about the condition of my heart? 
Some believe in these first four verses because Paul says, well, I gave you milk to drink, but not yet solid food because you weren't ready to receive it. Indeed, you were not, uh, even now you were not able for you were still fleshly. You were still mere men. And what's the example that he uses to point to this? And what's the evidence that would put them on trial this way? Verse three, there's jealousy and strife among you. Are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? Some believe Paul is setting up this two-tiered system for teaching, whereby milk is the truth about salvation and solid food are the advanced truths beyond that. I just want to be clear, that's not what Paul's doing here. He's, he's rather using this picture to, uh, to let the Corinthians know that they are immature. They're immature and the grasping at the milk and the kind of trying to, to not even understand and work through the implications of the introduction, it's prevented them from understanding a host of other things correctly. For Paul, his solid food, that teaching doesn't differ from the milk teaching. But there's this incorrect understanding of what he brought them first, and that stunted their growth on understanding other things. And amid the harsh realities, the direct challenge, the sobering assessment of these first few verses, Paul does address them as brothers, by implication as sisters, which would which would imply solidarity. And so just to be clear, Paul's not coming at them saying, this is evidence that you're not a Christian. I mean, he recognizes who they are in Christ. But this diagnosis would have been devastating for those who thought they had arrived in knowledge. These Christians are weak and sinful as they live like mere men with desires that oppose the Spirit. All the while they were thinking they were spiritually mature. And yet their competitive, self-seeking jealousy and strife, it undermined and it contradicted the work of the Holy Spirit in their life to identify them as a people of the cross. For Paul, the idea of a divided local church was simply unimaginable. And you may notice that he only mentions himself and Apollos here in verse 4. If we were to go back to earlier chapters, chapter 1, he mentions, he mentions himself and Apollos and Cephas and Christ. And so some people think, well, why does he drop two? Well, I believe it's an easy answer. He only mentions two of the factions here because only two of the, of the factions that were happening actually labored among the Corinthians. Apollos and Paul. And in light of the imagery that's coming about hired farmhands, then it would most aptly apply to them. And so Paul's going to seek to, to labor to remove the focus off of themselves and place it upon the work of God. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Written to a local church, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The truth about divisions is that it reveals 
a misunderstanding, a wrong understanding and application of the gospel. Section number two. Christians are God's field. Christians are God's field. Listen to how Paul continues his case. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. And so addressing the issue head on, Paul begins by noting that the Corinthians had taken these ministers, turned them into party heads, and Paul says, do you know who they really are? Like, they're servants. They're servants. Not only are they servants, but they're servants who belong to God. Not only are they servants who belong to God, they're servants who have been given a task differing from one another from God. Not only are they servants belonging to God, having been given different tasks by God, but their success depends entirely upon God. Paul sees the Corinthian church as a field of crops belonging to God. And to be clear... Leaders do have a role to play, and their, role, their roles aren't always the same. What Paul does in these first few verses in talking about Christians as God's field is that he diminishes the role of the laborer by highlighting the work of God himself. It's God who gives growth. Without God, seeds just lie dormant under the dirt. Without God, water just turns dirt into mud. That's why he can say the planter and the waterer are nothing. And again, I, I, I want to be clear when I say they're nothing. We have to balance that with what he says about a church having to have faithful teachers. That's vitally important. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 5 through 9, he's making a contrast. And he's saying, when you compare the worker to the one who causes the growth, it's as if these people are nothing. <coughs> Workers have a role, but compared to what they don't and can't control, it might as well be nothing. God has to bring the growth. So not what 1 Corinthians 2 made clear. Paul says, I came preaching Christ and him crucified. Paul said, I kept it simple. My message was simple. Why? Because it's God's power who brings growth in his people. And so I was faithful with a message, and it's a miracle that some would hear that message and believe. It's only because of the Spirit. That's the argument in chapter 2. We would have never seen the truth of the gospel had the Spirit not done the work. Had the Spirit not opened our eyes. And so from start to finish, God does it all. 
Paul knew he could stand up and he could preach truth all day long, but unless God gives the growth, it's just noise, it's just words, it's just a message. And so for you and I to have unity in this church, for us to have health, the health that we need in this church, then we need to be on the same page about where growth comes from. We need to know better than, well, if we just did a little bit more of this to attract a little bit more of those, or if we just sort of switched this around, if, we, if, 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 if what we really did was just spent all of our time focusing on programs, let's just exchange programs in and out. There are so many things that could consume our attention. And we just need to know that while changing things has been used by God to be helpful, to better facilitate faithfulness, a change of programs isn't the answer for bringing growth. God brings growth. And so that means if you're a member of Covenant Life Church and we believe that God is the one who brings the growth, and I'm not merely talking about bringing more, But Paul is addressing bringing depth, like growth this way, health. If we're convinced that that's the case, then we need to all be pleading with the God who brings the growth to provide the growth that we long to see. And so just very practically then, if you're a member of this church, there is an expectation that you would gladly, joyfully come together with your local church once a month to say, let's set our hearts united together towards heaven, begging God to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Come to Life Church, that opportunity is tonight at 4.30. If you're not a member of Covenant Life Church and you say, I would long to unite my hearts with the people like that to pray those ends, we would invite you to come. Pray with us. If we truly understand that we are nothing and he grants growth, then we need him to move. And so make plans this afternoon to join us for a time of what we pray would be a time of expectant, faith-filled praying to this God who delights to move for the unity of this church more than we even want him to move for the unity of his church. But not just come, come and pray. I, I'm thinking about ways in which we can begin to continue to identify evidences of grace that Paul began this letter modeling for us. So take time to look around for signs of the ways in which the Lord is giving growth. We can see him answering our prayers. Just take note of what the Lord is doing in and through the local church. I think that's a wonderful aspect, a characteristic of a church that's healthy, is that it oftentimes looks around and says, Lord, we see you at work here. We see you at work here. We not only want to pray for that, we also want to recognize that. Thank you for that. We want to encourage one another with that. Where do you see green sprouts that are breaking through the brown soil? And if you don't see any, I would just encourage you I think beginning to look for 
These types of evidence of grace can guard us from complaining that would lead us to potentially being divisive. And so let's celebrate the work of God among us. And let's pray, begging him to keep on working. We are God's field. And if we're God's field, then we must know better than to think that we can be the ones who bring the growth. Third section, we're not just God's field. Christians are God's building. Christians are God's building. We see this in verses 9 through 17. 9 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. For we are God's fellows, fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. And so again, be thinking about the context, thinking about divisions, and Paul's coming in to make a case of why they ought to be united. So Paul says, I've laid a foundation, another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is, Christ, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Okay, so this is all still a reframing of their perspective to see this as God's church. Right, so Paul comes one through four and he makes clear that you are immature in the faith and it's clear in your divisions. And then what Paul begins to do is he begins to say, listen, you have to understand this is not your church. It's not Paul's church. It's not Apollos' church. This is God's church. And in fact, if it's God's church, you are God's field. Not only are you God's field in which ministers are, are merely servants belonging to the Lord. Not only are their giftedness given by God, their tasks are assigned by God, and the results are owing to God. Why in the world would you attach yourself to a servant when it's God who's the one who gives the growth? And then Paul says, but it's not just that you're a field, it's also that you're a building. And really, the focus on that first metaphor, being a field, is what God does. And the focus on this metaphor of being a building is what we do. It's on our role. Because even though God is the one who causes the growth, there is a legitimate, a real role for us to play. Everything that we do apart from him is not enough. We need to trust him, but what we do really does matter. And there's a strong warning built into this section. We'll see it towards the end. Verses 16 and 17. But it's a warning that concerns the day of judgment. I just want to be clear because I think it's clear all in this section. 
If you are a follower of Christ, you will give an account for what you have done in this life. And you think, praise be to God, I have escaped judgment, being condemned for my sin. And if, you are, if you've turned from your sin and you've placed your faith and your trust in Christ alone, you will escape that. But you will still give an account for your life and what you've given yourself to. Which, why in the world would Paul put this reality in this chapter? Because the unity of God's church is more precious to God than you and I realize. Paul writes pleading with these Corinthians, not Paul writes pleading with the Corinthians to be careful how they build God's building. And Paul makes clear there's only one foundation. And so if anybody shows up trying to lay another foundation, you don't even build on that. So that, that would be a, an instance where we must divide. The church must divide if someone else shows up and says, hey, there is another foundation, a better foundation. A founda the foundation of Christ is lacking something, so let's add to it. Paul would say, no, 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 you, if you try to add anything to this foundation, take anything away from this foundation, there has to be division. Paul's laid that foundation. What is that foundation? It's Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross. And Paul has in, in mind, he pictures teachers and members who've come in after him that are building on that foundation. Paul wants to ensure that what they build with what they build with matches the foundation that they're building on. That's a consuming passion all throughout this letter. Are you living a life that's consistent with the foundation that you are building your life on? What you build with must match what you're building on. That means it all has to be tied to Jesus. Perhaps you're not a Christian this morning. You've shown up and you've listened and you're thinking, okay, unity in the church seems to be a, a, a really big thing. And maybe you have questions about the Christian faith. I'm thankful that you're here. I think what, what better place to ask questions about the Christian faith than people who were once not a part of the Christian faith, who now are a part of the Christian faith, and who are seeking to conform their life to the Christ of that faith. If you're not a Christian, and perhaps you're just thinking, like, what is the foundation? Maybe the foundation is some ethical teachings that I've heard. When I think of Christianity, I think ethical teachings. Well, I just want you to know that the foundation of the Christian faith is not ethical teaching, like we find in so many other religions. The foundation of the Christian faith is not even living a good life. No, the foundation of the Christian faith is the good news that even though we all deserve the judgment of God because we have rejected God and his claim over our lives, in unthinkable mercy and grace, God has not rejected us. But instead... God has taken on flesh in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He lived the life 
that we are required to live if we're ever going to have standing before him. He died the death that we deserved and he got up alive from the dead. And you say, well, how in the world is that good news? Sounds, sounds fun, but how's it good news? The death of Jesus for us is good news because Jesus serves as our substitute, our representative, making it possible for God to forgive us without abandoning God's justice. Like oftentimes we think of God, we think, yeah, this is what God does. God must forgive. God is forgiving, but God can't be forgiving if it means he no longer is just. So how does God forgive sinners and yet hold them accountable for their sin? How is he gracious and just? And the foundation of the Christian faith says that the message of his sinless life his death on a cross as a substitute, and his bodily resurrection, that's the way in which he can remain just because he pours out wrath, everything in, in his righteous hatred against sin, he pours out wrath on, on one who would become sin, whose life said innocent, but who died a death that said guilty. So God loves sinners and he can forgive sinners and he can uphold his justice in and through the cross. He dies our death and he doesn't stay dead. And when he rises, it guarantees that all who turn from their sin and place their faith and trust, they too will rise and they will live forever with him. The reason unity matters here is because we are barreling towards a day in which we will be together with our God and there will be no division. <laughs> and so we say, Lord, as it is in heaven, so let it be on earth. Heaven has broken into history. And you may have, walk in, you may have walked in this morning not believing the message and the foundation of the Christian faith, you don't have to leave that way. If you would be willing to turn from your sin and trust in the finished work of Christ, you can know. You can know forgiveness. You can know love. You can know grace and mercy and peace. You can know unity. Not just one day in eternity, but heaven has broken in now. If you have questions, it would be the joy of any person in this room to talk to you about those. But this is where you start. Jesus Christ and what he has done is the foundation. It's what Christianity is all about. And so don't leave without talking to someone. And you don't have to talk to someone. You can just bow your knee in submission turning from your sin and trusting in that work of Jesus alone. And there's such a temptation for us to, 
to begin to say, how might we build up the church? And, and, and we're tempted in the moment, we're tempted in our day to use things that would build up the church that may look impressive for the moment or even look impressive from afar, but will not last. And that really is what Paul begins to talk about. It's not just that there is a foundation, but there is a kind of work that has to be built on, founda- on that foundation. There's a quality of work. We don't want to be a people who spend our lives building on the foundation of Christ only to get to the day of judgment and realize that everything that we have given our lives to, hay, wood, and straw. Or we have nothing to show. It's so easy to begin to think about, okay, what am I going to give my life to? And we begin to give our lives to things that just plays to the crowd. Like I'm convinced that if we said, hey, let's just put the Bible to the side and let's think about how can we get the most people in this room? We could come up with strategies to get more people in this room than that are here today. And I'm sure we could be pretty creative in how we do it. But what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is the aim isn't merely to build a crowd. The aim merely isn't to to see what what can we use that would attract people that mainly then would revolve around things that won't last. Paul doesn't want to build a crowd. He wants to build a people and he wants people to have a hope that will endure the day of judgment. And so if you and I begin to build with anything that is not compatible with the foundation, what's the foundation? The foundation is Christ. So if we begin to think, okay, well, Christ is the foundation. Now let's begin to move away from Christ and let's start thinking about other things. It will not last. We have to be a people who keep coming back to not only say the foundation is Christ, but everything that we're building on the foundation has to connect to Christ. And that's why Paul would say first, the first several chapters of this letter, all I have is the gospel. Like that, That's all I'm coming. I'm coming with this message, and I'm not even coming with this message in crazy power and strength and eloquence. I'm putting all my stock in this message because I believe this message will build up a people that will last through the refining fire. And just to be clear, what Paul's talking about here is not hypothetical. There is a real day that is coming when we will stand before God and all that we have done will be seen for what it really is. We will be judged by the one whose judgment only matters. On that day, when our work is seen by him, it will be made known. And if it survives, the worker will receive a reward. And if it doesn't survive, he will lose the reward. And again, Paul's clear here. He's not talking about if the work survives, then you're a Christian. If the work doesn't survive, then you're not a Christian. And so again, think about this section. This is what's in view. The work of ministry... For a leader in particular and for a congregation in general. 
There are things that we will give ourselves to that is building on the foundation of Christ in which we are trying to build and give our lives towards something that will last, that will hold up during the day of refining judgment. Personal salvation is not in view here. This is not an argument that someone can lose their salvation by being burned in a fire. But we're also not told what the reward is. And we don't know what the loss will be. I think we can look elsewhere and maybe begin to get hints. As as I tried to come to a personal conviction, even this week in my study, like what is the reward? And what do you lose? I was helped by what Paul says in his letter to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19. Paul says that believers are his crown of boasting at the coming of the Lord. Paul says, for who is our hope or our joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Probably the most moving part of sermon prep this week was just thinking about this reality. Like as a pastor, I can think of no greater reward than to see you there on the day of judgment. Like I can think of no greater reward than to see you standing, glorying in the lamb that was slain and the quality of your life's work standing through the refining fire. What more could you give to a pastor, earthly speaking, than that reward? And then I just began to think how devastating the loss that that would be. so tempting as a pastor to think that because there's some metric of attendance or membership that somehow we have successful ministries. Yet if they don't endure to the end, how painful. The main point of these verses is whatever the reward or loss is, whoever is engaged in building God's house should be careful to keep their work centered on Jesus and the gospel. Be careful what you build with, Covenant Life Church. It may look good for now, but if it will not stand in in the judgment to come, do not give your life to that work. Build people in this gospel if you want to see them last. We can't move on from it. And I think this text is really a gift to our elders to to keep our focus on what matters most, and that is the people that he's brought here and the word that we all need. That's what will stand up. And so elders, brothers, I'm speaking to you. It's hard to measure this kind of work. And it's impossible to even control this kind of work. And all too often, it can feel as though 
is much difference even being made in this type of work? And brothers, I just want to encourage you, our work, our work in people with God's word is not measured by today, but on that day to come. Not by the size of the membership today, but by the faith of those that we have served. I mean, just think about the great cathedrals, reading about how some took hundreds of years to complete. Men gave their lives to build something they had never seen. And they gave their lives to build something that they would never see completed. Trusting that one day it would be beautiful. Brother elders, I think building a church God's way is like this. We won't get to see it until we reach glory. But we trust as we cut stones and set them up on the wall and serve the gospel day after day, we are doing our parts to see and be a part of a work that will last. And members, your role is crucial in this work. You have a power that you may not recognize. And that is to encourage your pastors to keep at that work. To not pull away to other things. When I think about what makes me vulnerable as a pastor, it's not necessarily reading magazines and saying, hey, what are other churches doing? What makes me vulnerable as a pastor is oftentimes feeling that the appetite of the church is for something else. And so if I could just encourage you, member of Covenant Life Church, it puts wind in the sails when you long for this kind of 1 Corinthians 3 work from your pastors. And the encouragement that you give is, is continue, continue to give us Jesus, build us up with Jesus. Like I'm praying for you elders that you would build us up with Jesus. That's the work that the elders want to do. We want to take the gospel. We want to build on that foundation. We will give an account. And fellow elders and church members, we will never regret working in the gospel. And in verses 16 and 17, Paul returns to the idea that he introduced in verse 9. It's not just that they're a building, but they're a certain kind of building. They're not the garage. They're a special building. They're God's house. They're God's temple. Just like the Old Testament temple where the Spirit of God dwells. Paul then writes, this, the local church is God's temple indwelt by his Spirit. I think it's helpful for us to know. Verses 16 and 17, are, they serve as a poor proof text for why you should keep bad things out of your body. The plural, uh, every you in verses 16 and 17 is plural. Paul has in mind not individual Christians abstaining from that which would destroy them, divide them. He has in mind a local church, a people. Covenant life, you are God's temple. 
There is a wrecking crew out there. Though they're not named, they're described. They're those who corrupt God's church. You say, well, how do people do that? How, how can people wreck the church? Well, the rest of the letter is going to look at that. Unrepentant sin wrecks the church. Going to court to sue fellow Christians wrecks the church. Prideful exaltation, disorderly attitudes in public worship. Dividing over non-essentials. Anyone who destroys or divides the church by whatever means, rest assured you will attract the attention of God, but it is not the kind of attention that you want to attract. You will attract his wrath. The Bible says God will destroy those who destroy his church. The, the language is shocking. It, it, there's even a play on the word. What you do to the church, God will do to you. As I think about Covenant Life Church, I think, We are susceptible to fault lines all over the place. And perhaps we even have fault lines in places that I'm even unaware of. But I think the danger that we face, by God's grace today, may not be a danger of heresy, but a danger of division. A willingness to divide or tear down the people of God because of personal preferences. A willingness to slander or support narratives, maybe even lies at times, to advance personal views. That's a dangerous place to be for a local church, and that's a dangerous thing to do as local church members. We are not going to agree on everything. So we have to be able to follow Paul's example valuing the precious gift of the local church's unity, all the while protecting the local church's purity. And this is just where we have to learn how to triage as a church. Some things are worth dying for, and some things are worth dying over. But not everything is worth dying for or dying over. And there are cert certain things that we have to divide over. Even when we get the gospel correctly, if a church says, yeah, we believe women can serve as elders, we think, okay, we have to divide over that for the sake of unity in this church. We believe we can baptize infants as well as believers. Uh, yeah, we just think we probably need to divide because every time a child is born, we're going to have conflict. And so it's for the... For the preservation of the unity, it's helpful for us to divide. But then there's a huge group of things that we can agree to discuss and maybe even disagree over, but we won't divide over because it's taking a lesser thing and making it something that we should divide over. And so the warning in these verses is not to destroy God's building. The unity of God's people is so precious to God. And so Paul says, be jealous for the unity of the church as much as God is. And that brings us to the last point, the antidote to boasting in men. The antidote to boasting in men. See if you can pick it up in verses 18 through 23. Let no man deceive himself. 
If any man among you thinks that he is, a, he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness before God, for it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And then again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. This divisive boasting in these leaders, it parades as wisdom, but it isn't wisdom at all. Paul says, if we're going to be wise, then we have to be willing to go the way of the cross, which is foolishness to the world. And the problem really is spelled out there in verse 21 through 23. Paul makes it clear that in Jesus Christ, there is a massive security that should solve this problem of petty divisions in the church. And he says in verse 21, the summary statement, let no one boast in men because all things are yours. And so that's the flow of this chapter. You're immature in your faith because you don't realize you don't belong to them. No, in fact, you're God's field. In fact, you're God's building. And not only that, therefore, you should not be boasting in men because everything is yours in Christ. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Don't boast in men because all things are yours in Christ. If you have been given an inheritance of $500 million, why in the world are you running around boasting about your $20 bill? Like you've been given so much more. John Piper's helpful. He says, when a sense of insecurity in your abilities, in your job, in your ministry, in your theology, when it tempts you to attach yourself to someone who's stronger, someone more competent, someone more esteemed, someone more gifted, someone more secure, don't do it. You don't need to do it because all things are yours. When a sense of an out-of-the-way insignificance in this world of social media and publishing, and growing churches, and conference speaking, when that tempts you to attach yourself to someone or some group that's more prominent, that's more published, that's more successful, that's more admired, don't do it. You don't need to do it because all things are yours in Christ. When the craving for the applause that comes from being known, or being even in the know, about the latest music group or athletic team or movie or pastor or theologian or book or political guru, when that tempts you to attach yourself to them, don't do it. You don't need to do it because all things are yours in Christ. When the craving for secondhand significance and worth and power and authority tempts you to grasp for those things by boasting in men, don't do it. You don't need to do it. For all things are yours in Christ. Piper said, all things are yours. That is the brightest thunderbolt that could possibly strike in the darkness of your life. Present or future. And yet Paul knows that when lightning strikes, we tend to close our eyes. We tend to shield ourselves from its brightness. And so we miss the grandeur of it. It doesn't have its full effect on us. And what Paul does in these last few verses 
is hold our eyes open. To say, why in the world would you attach yourself to a leader when everything else is yours because of Christ? Paul, Apollos, Cephas, the world, life, or death? That just, I stopped in my tracks this week. Life and death are yours. Life and death are yours. Why attach yourself to anything less? Death is not the end of joy. It's not the end of love. It's not the end of life. It's actually the beginning of it. Death used to be an executioner, but to Christians, it's now a mere gardener. George Herbert says the Christian looks at death and says, Spare not and do your worst, for you will make me better than I was before. (laughs) And you, death, will be so much worse that you will be no more. Life and death are yours. Why? Because you are Christ's. If you are a, if you are a Christian this morning, you are Christ's. You belong to him in the way that a hand belongs to the body. A bride belongs to a husband. A subject belongs to a king. A brother belongs to a brother in the same family. And why does belonging to Christ make all things yours? Because Christ belongs to God. If you are Christ and Christ is God, then Christ is God's son. Christ is God's word. Christ is God's image. Christ is God's beloved. Christ is God's radiance. Christ is God's essence. Christ is God's heir. All that God the Father is or can be or can do for for one like himself, he is and he does for Christ. And if you are in Christ, then he does it all for you. Each of those things, world, life, death, present, future, those things are tyrants to us. So we find ourselves captive to the demands of these things as we live our, uh, as we live our lives. The world around us places so many demands that we're forced to think that sometimes this world is all there is. Life feels fleeting and death seems imminent and it forces us to live in a way in which we are held hostage as though life is all there is is and death is the end but not for Christians all things are yours in Christ so we don't chase after the things of the world why because we are heirs of this world with Christ we don't feel the pressures of life and the imminence of death because our lives extend well beyond death and we will know a truer life even after our death The urgency of the present and the haziness of the future doesn't drive us to take our eyes off of Christ. No, it drives us to keep our eyes fixed on him. Because in belonging to him, God will do all things and give all things to his people. Therefore, Covenant Life Church, do not boast in men. Boast in Christ. Be done with worry, put away insecurity and fears of insignificance and all the craving for some kind of secondhand importance. And do the deep, solid, unshakable, confident work of building upon Christ so that you will know that all things are yours. 
whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or present or the future, all things are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. Let's pray.